Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and 97.5 HD2, part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, I know you were glued to your TV last night for all night of the first round of the NFL draft coverage. Oh, there is nothing better than staring at a TV, watching for 15 minutes or whatever allotment they give, just talking and talking and talking about something that may not happen. Which do you uh, but, like but less? I, but I do have, a, I do have a, the most important question is, are the Eagles going to change their name to the Bulldogs? Uh, the the Bulldogles is yep. what they'll be. And um, look, that's I don't know. That doesn't sound. <laughs> <Bulldogle>. <laughs> how, about, how about Eagle Dogs? That was Eagle Dog. Yeah. Look, okay. I guess they decided that taking four players off the 2021 national championship team is the way to go and rebuild the team. Look, I, if you would have told me before the draft that they go in getting these two players, I would have not thought that they didn't need to make the moves to get up to do it. Uh, I don't know if you were watching it all. Micah Parsons was live on Bleacher Report, and AJ Brown was on Bleacher Report too. And they yeah, were kind of I try. I tried not to watch anything with Cowboys. So they were they were together, and <laughs> when the Eagles made the pick of Jalen Carter, Micah Parsons stood up and he goes, "I'm sick to my stomach." <laughs> he was like physically ill over the fact that the Eagles not got another stud. Of course, his draft was clouded by the misdemeanor charges yeah so there's my question as an eagles fan are you at all concerned about the eagles again having a history of picking somebody with real character well i i think they had to weigh it out i'm concerned sure i mean clearly there's a reason why he fell he he fell because he seemed to be overweight at his pro day and because there was the situation with driving there was a fatal crash he got 12 months probation. Uh, apparently, the state of Georgia is barred from bringing additional charges. He may face civil charges. I guess the Eagles did their investigation uh, to say that they were okay with his character. I I, I do have concerns, uh, but that's not my call. Okay, so so uh, that's that's fine if that's the way you feel. But what does that mean? The Eagles did their research to determine his character. Let's face it, the he- Eagles is as well as an organization as they are when when it comes to how it's been run has a history now of taking it, bringing in guys that have some serious issues. So Look, they, they would the say organization it, that brought in Michael. Fick. They would say it differently. They would say that they're giving people second chances. I'm just telling you how they would pose okay. it. And, and they would say that they did their research and they believe that the action that he took won't be repeated. I hope they're right because if they're right, the player who they got on the field has been dominant in Georgia's defense. So that will fill a need. You had Javon Hargrave leave. So, yeah, we can analyze the off the field. We could talk the on the field for a need of the team. This was a need that the team had, and he was considered one of the top players in the draft on almost every board. Yeah, well, you know who also was considered one of the top players on the draft on every board, according to what Wall, the prognosticator, said beforehand? Yeah. Will Levis. Yeah, he had a rough night. Not only did he have a rough night, they kept the cameras on him all night. Yeah. Is there anything so why, why less? Why do they do that? Is there I anything mean, more uncomfortable than seeing somebody's future before their eyes plummet, losing millions and millions of dollars on national TV? It was so they, awkward. I heard somebody say that they panned to him 37 times. That may be undercounting the amount of okay. times. And, they, and that that was more than 20 more or 30 more than anybody else in, in the room why yes. do why do that 
I mean, it, it, is it is there anybody who's watching it? That, Why? That because is excited to see that they're trying to create tension and emotion to suck in the viewer. Because you will not sit there to watch them do an analysis of the third pick, but they may hook you to watch somebody's career fall before their eyes. Now, look, he'll probably be drafted at the very top of the second round today. Uh, but after, he was four to one odds earlier in the week to go top three right. and did not get there, taken. There, there were some people who said that he was going to be the number one pick in the draft. Well, he's no within, Aaron, he's no Aaron Rodgers, so apparently, Jeff, because, you know, he'd just trade everything for Aaron Rodgers. What do right. you think of that deal? Well, forget the deal. Did you see how much they're going to have to pay him next year? You know, it's not uh, good it, for it, salary it, cap when you owe $107 million in one how year. Is that, how is that possible? Because he's officially on the Is books. that half the salary cap? No. Well, so they'll restructure it. But the way that Green mm. Bay did it, is he's making 107 million it was supposed to be half and half or around half and half they restructured it to dump all the money into the second year so he'll show on the jets books for like a million and a half this year but next year he's on the hook for 107 million okay so this is a one-year gamble on one person has there been a bigger gamble that you can remember in a trade other didn't they do this for brett Favre? no no, I, don't, I mean, first of all, you didn't have the salary cap problems that you would have now. But has there been a bigger gamble all in than this? Possibly oh, yeah. Herschel Walker? Uh, Ricky Williams? Yeah, that's. I guess that's the other one. But but even with the Ricky Williams trade, it, it wasn't, I'm going to draft Ricky Williams and we're going to win the Super Bowl now, this year. Jets, Jets fans are saying it's either Super Bowl or bust. Jets fans are obviously happy. So the Jets gave up their 2023 first. They're, uh, they got the 2023 first from the Packers and the 23 fifth rounder. They gave up their first round this year, a second round pick this year, a sixth round pick this year, and then a conditional second next year that becomes a first round pick if Aaron Rodgers plays 65% of the snaps. All right. I want to go back to your Eagles for a second. Here. Okay. It, it, the, the pick directly before the Eagles was Bijan Robinson. If Bijan Robinson had not been picked by the Falcons, which I, I'm blown away that the Falcons decided to pick a running back. They need so much else. Yeah, I'm shocked by that. Would you have wanted them to take, if Bijan Robinson and Jalen Carter were both on the board at the time, who would you have taken? So I liked Bijan Robinson, but that's not what the Eagles do. And I kept telling you that all along. We talked about this in the weeks leading up. If Eagles fans do this every year. We pick a player and we decide we're going to, fantasize about that player who nobody was even aware of other than the draft heads month before. And we're going to turn it into a litmus test on whether or not we're successful based on whether or not we get that player. Would he have been great? Sure. Did he, did he actually fit in the system? I don't think so. He's not the type of running back that they use. He would have been a huge dynamic. Why is he not a good, why is he not a good receiver? Receiving isn't his his strong suit. He doesn't necessarily. It's not his strong suit because he's such a strong runner. Again, I did. That's the offense that Texas ran. But I would, I think that they wouldn't have taken him if he got to nine. I think they would have waited till ten and taken either him or Jalen Carter, whichever was there, and not moved up. I still don't think they would have taken him at ten. There's no history that shows that the Eagles were ever going to take a running back in the top ten. That's just not what they do. Well, what the Eagles also did is they had a second pick in that in the first round, which I thought they yeah. would trade. I thought that okay. Howie would trade one of them to get another first rounder next year. They didn't. They used it to take another Georgia Bulldog, 
outside yeah, linebacker. Who's undersized. He is undersized. He's not listed. So the thing is, he's not listed as a linebacker. He's listed as an edge rusher. So do you think that he's going to be a linebacker, or do you think they're going to have him put on a bunch of weight, eat a bunch of meat, and then he's going to be on the on the line? I don't know because I don't know how they're going to set up the defense yet. That's the thing. Everybody's going off the way the offense and the defense are structured last year. You assume the offense is going to be structured similarly because you had somebody who was in the offense that's now ascending to the offensive coordinator. The defense, you have a new coordinator. And I don't know whether Nick Sirianni had things about Jonathan Gannon he didn't like that he now wants to put in with his new coordinator. So I'm not really... Jonathan Gannon who was hurt that he thought that everybody was rooting against him? Well... Look, <laughs> what's the thing? If you listen to the fans, apparently, be, apparently he listened to you. I didn't realize that he you was the one complaining. About he it. was so concerned about the things that I was saying on the radio. But apparently he did not like being here because I was saying mean things. I, yeah. I, well, you can't make it up, man. You, you just and again, why do you go there? Just say I enjoyed my time in Philadelphia. Why do that? Why pick a fight with fans and the media and you're not going to win that. It's just right. so if you if you look I think the by the way, I think that yeah. he has a harder time being successful in Arizona than Shane Steichen has in Indianapolis. I think Shane Steichen is set up to do better, especially given the uncertainty around Kyler Murray in Arizona, than So you so you Gannon. think Anthony Richardson's gonna be the real deal? I think if they, that, if they get this wrong again, if the Colts get a quarterback wrong again. I think that he is the best chance for Shane Steichen to build him into somebody. I think that if he would have gone someplace else, it wouldn't have been as good. I think Carolina is same type of situation with Frank Reich there. I think it's a really good situation for Bryce Young to go to there as opposed to C.J. Stroud, who is going with a defensive coach. I thought the Texans made some nice moves. They gave up a ton for that second pick. Okay, so that, yeah. So if you if I had to look at the draft just from the first round, the two winners of, of that round might be the Eagles and, and the Texans. That's what who I think. A better first round. Um. They both had really good first rounds. I, I think that you know I don't know. Fence is back. That that's a really tough. That's a really tough question, though. You're right. It's me, I asked the hard hitting question. You're you're right, though. Of which one had the best first round? I don't know. Is the answer? I I, I, I think the Texans. I know they gave up a lot, but it, arguably you might have gotten the best or the one A quarterback in the first round, and you might have gotten the best defensive player. in the yeah, 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 I mean it's possible. They, they at least they got two. They got two players in the top three who were probably in the top three of their side of the ball. Yeah, the no, they definitely, and maybe that's it. I just don't want to say it's not the Eagles. Maybe that's the mm. the Eagle fan in me. Well, that doesn't mean that's that doesn't mean the Eagles had a bad draft. They, no, I I would think that the, the Texans did really well. I'm just not sure how. Like D'Amico Ryan's the defensive coordinator as a head coach. We'll see what their offensive coordinator does. They need other weapons around him. Jeff, let's leave our. NFL football talk there and go to some soccer football talk. Jeff, we we always love our union talk. Let's let's go to the source of where it all actually begins for the union. Director of Academy and Professional Development for the Philadelphia Union, Tommy Wilson, joins the show. Tommy, thank you so much for the time today. Yeah, pleasure to be on, gentlemen. Look forward to it. It's we always love getting to talk soccer and, and with people from the union. You bring your own unique experience to this squad separate from the position you have now. You, you came from a family of soccer players, your dad, your brothers. You were a 15 year professional. Can you talk about your own career journey before you ended up in coaching and then management and development? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I suppose it was inevitable coming from the family that I did um, where my dad was a, a former professional and my brothers um, both played at a, 
a senior level also. So I had to struggle to be the best player in my house before I could even think about uh, trying to get into a team. Um, and really growing up in Glasgow, it was the only thing we thought about. And, you know, I grew up about a mile from Celtic Park uh, in the east end of Glasgow. And, um, you know, although my family would more, my brother's a big Rangers fan. Um, so, you know, I, I played soccer from as soon as I could walk, basically. <clears throat> I remember making it into my school team at a young age uh, in the primary school. And then there wasn't, there wasn't the, like the professional youth development models that we have now. It was more about playing for your school and, uh, I played for a school, a boys club and the boys brigade every weekend. So I'd played three games every weekend um, and I never thought anything of it. I remember my dad would take me to the games. Uh, very rarely would he coach me or say anything to me about, you know, unless I had a really bad game, you know. So he just supported me, which I think was a, a real credit to him with, with the background that he had as a professional that he could have been had me out in the back garden and all that but he didn't he just let me it was my own journey I had a, a sort of dual path I wanted to some of my family my, one of my cousins had signed professional professionally and left the house his house in Scotland to go to England and it didn't work out so I was always keen to get an education behind me so I studied as an engineer qualified as an engineer with Caterpillar the American uh, tractor company. Um, and at the same time, when I graduated, after four years, I had the chance to go pro with St. Martin or stay in engineering. And I chose to go into soccer full-time. And I guess the rest is history. I played, for the most part, in the Premier League in Scotland. Played for the uh, national team at under-21 level. Won the Scottish Cup. Um, played around 400 professional games and scored one goal. So... <laughs> You understand that as a def I'm a defender and um, uh, I probably should have scored a few more goals than that. But towards the end of my career, I travelled in a car from Glasgow to Dunfermline, uh, who were in the Premier League at the time, with Billy Davis, who became a, a manager in the English Premier League, uh, Ian McCall, who became a manager in the Scottish Premier League, and David Moyes, who's still a manager in the English Premier League. So the four of us talked about nothing but soccer and coaching. So we all went into coaching really early and it was natural for me to do that. So um, I always wanted to take the, the, the skills that I'd learned as a, as a soccer player and try and put them into coaching. And I've been able to ally that with the, the qualities that I developed as, as an engineer, a planning engineer. You know, like I, I look at the academy as a manufacturing plant and we bring the raw material in at the start and we put it through a series of processes and we put it out at the end as a finished product. So that's a, a quick synopsis of my journey. So 10 years ago, your journey continued, I believe 10 years ago, your journey continued by being named the director of the academy with mm -hmm. the Philadelphia Union. When you took that job, could you have possibly envisioned where it would lead? The, the, the success of, of the, the players that have come through that program and how it's impacted the success that the union has had at the top level. Truthfully, no. I would say that I thought we could. I thought we could be successful. I, I mean, I've been coming over to America for a long time before that. I, you know, came over many moons ago and and met one of the owners, uh, Richie Graham, who was like the founder of the YSC Academy and you know and a, a big supporter of the Union Academy. And I, so I, I had I saw the level of talent that was in this country. 
the the quality of player, um, the the type of athlete that we would get to work with. I always believe that a lot of the top countries in Europe have benefited from immigration because they, they, they sort of get the best of, you know, different nationalities moving into their country and, and these players end up representing the national team. And there's no bigger melting pot than the USA when it comes to that. So I felt that if we could get things organised and get our house in order, that we had a chance and Richie, I remember saying to me, I said, what, what, what do you expect, Richie? You know what, what you're looking for? He says, I want you to develop world-class players. And I thought that's a bit of a lofty goal, you know, when you think about world-class players out there currently. And even in 10 years ago, there's not a lot of Americans come into your thought. No, I think if I'm being totally honest, I thought we would be successful. I thought that with the resources that we had, that I was given, with the experience that I had, do a good job. But I think where we are is has well exceeded my own expectations. Well, you've put some of those names on the big stage directly from your system. You know, you've been an academy director in Europe where you're with a club that was 150 years old, an academy director here in the MLS with a club that's 10 years old. What are some of the similarities and differences between the academies here and over in Europe in terms of player development? When I came at first, there wasn't a lot of similarity. I'm, I'm not saying that I've I've brought the similar Arab made this institute now look more like a European academy, although I think it does. But there was no real expectation of of what 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 does an academy look like? Because there, there wasn't that many over here. And even the ones that were here hadn't been running for very long. So when you go into a place like, like Rangers, and I remember Richie saying this to me, you can make 2%, 5%, maybe 10% difference because it's like an institution. There's all these structures and, and methods in place and to try and change them, it's like it's like turning the Titanic. So um, whereas here, we were we were making our own path. We, we, we had the opportunity to go in whatever direction we wanted. And we, we considered this like a research and development lab and like no idea was too stupid and all that stuff. So we... We, we started out, I mean, obviously I had a clear idea in my head about what an academy looked like. I had worked at Rangers for a long time who are, you know, one of the top clubs in Europe. And you realise that when you walk through the door there, that it's a, it is an institution. I mean, at Rangers, if they're under 12s, lost a couple of games in a row, people were saying, what's, what's going on there? When I was taking the reserve team, if I lost two games in a row, I, I think... My colleagues were thinking I wasn't long for the job, you know. I was, I was, you know, they, they were getting ready for my leaving party. So that um, that environment toughens you up a lot. And when I came here, there was a there was a, a relief because that wasn't expected. We could lose a game, win a game, draw a game. Nobody really bothered. They didn't have any expectation. I feel it now, ten years down the road, we have that expectation here now. We are expected to win. We are. People look at us and 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 see the results that we have and the success that we've had. And we, we, we're a little bit of a victim of that. Um, but that's okay because it's. I believe that we now have the infrastructure in place. We have a group of experienced, talented young coaches. We have an educational program through YSC Academy that's second to none. We have a scouting department that's able to trawl through a continent, basically North America and fine players. Um, we have an operations team that is really well run and a performance department that's cutting edge in the work that we do. So I, mean, I remember during the pandemic, we had some some calls back and forward with some academies in Europe uh, and a few in the English Premier League who are, you know, they, they're 
they set the standard for a lot of this. And I would say that we are, in terms of our structure and organisation, are pretty comparable to what's going on at the best clubs in the world. We're not there yet, um, but we're, we're closing the gap. You know, you talked about almost being a victim of your own success. What what is it like? What do you go through? We know what we go through as fans when, when we watch people succeed and then move on. What is it like for you who 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 develops these players and builds them like, like the Aronson brothers? Um yeah. and, uh, where they are they become so successful that they end up going to Europe. There's got to be a sense of pride in that, but there's also a sense of loss, I would think. Yes, there is. And and probably <clears throat> the untold story here is that. <clears throat> that that just doesn't happen, doesn't just happen with our players, but it happens with our staff. And every year I've got to rebuild the staff in the academy. And if you look at our first team, there's about eight, I counted around eight staff members down there at Chester who came through the academy. So, I mean, that's a that's almost unreported, but it's it's I get take as much pride from that as I do from the players. But um, I'd need to say that when you watch the players go on to the next level, it is with a great degree of pride. And the good the, the good news is that there should be other ones coming through and coming up behind them. And, it, and it's my job to make sure that, not my job, it's our job to make sure that the ones coming up behind are every bit as good, if not better, than the ones that went before them. Like the first player we, we moved on was uh, Derek Jones who <clears throat> was a fluke. We found him by accident. We played a friendly game. We put together an under-18 team of players that hadn't been playing a lot, and we played against Lone Star, a local team, a local men's team. The best player in the field was this young midfield player, and I said to the coach, what age is he? And he said 16. So we brought him in. We took him out of his environment. We, we put him into the club. We put him into a residency at that time. We didn't train him much. And he went, he became our first professional. And then others followed us and trusty and others followed on. But now there's more of a a, a conveyor belt and a, <clears throat> a standard of young player that's coming through that's very, very similar to, to Brendan and Mark, who are the ones that we sold on to Europe. Um, and I'd like to think that in the fullness of time, some of the players that come behind them can be as successful, if not more successful than those two. But, you know, they've set the bar really high, to be fair. What's it mean for you? You know, you talk about catching up in terms of the development side. You've broken ground in Chester to move the academy right next to the big stadium with the big team. What's it going to mean for the development to have them so close to the big squad and to have that state-of-the-art facilities that are going to be there? Yeah, I mean, that's if you think what we've done, people, I came from almost the same facility that we're building uh, when I was at Rangers where we had an indoor first team, second team academy in the, in the one building, seven fields on the academy side, two and a half fields in the pro side, one of them under soil heated. So I was used to that. And then I came here and everyone was very complimentary about our facilities here, but they are, they, they're okay. But this is a game changer for us, what we're moving to. You know, like I'm here at the moment in Wayne. I spend half my, my week in Chester and half my week at the academy in Wayne. I spend two, maybe three hours a day in the car going up and down there. Um, our players are are moving between the, 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 the dual locations. So if you think about the, the energy and the time that's wasted, travelling up and down, just sit, that that alone will go away. If you think of the the night or under nines and under tens traveling down to train, 
at the same fields as our first team train on. The the role models that they'll see, the synergy that will be developed between the coaches, the players, the staff and the teachers when we're all under the one roof. We um, When I came here at first, Richie uh, afforded me the opportunity, spent a lot of time in Germany, <clears throat> visiting the German academies, a lot of them. And it was a great learning experience for me. We then get the chance to bring in um, Dan Coyle, who wrote The Culture Code, which is a fantastic book about culture in different environments. The fact that we now will all be under the one roof, I just think that the 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 simple things, the synergies, the interactions, the the chats when you're having a, a drink of water or coffee in the morning that we just don't have just now. So we've we've done pretty well, I would say, exceeded expectations. This move can only make us better. I don't know how much, but it can only make us better. Yeah, with regard to this move, with having the young guys under the same roof as as the more experienced professionals, having Coach Curtin at the top of that, that chain in that building, how important is the culture that Coach Curtin and you and the rest of, of the front office have had? How important is that to the development of the players? And wh- what do you want them to most take away from being in that building with the players that are currently on the union? Yeah, I would say that um, for me, the beauty of being here for so long, and Jim, Jim's been here longer than me, and Jim and I worked together. Um, when Jim was the interim coach, I was his assistant for six months. Um, and so him, him and I developed a really good relationship uh, throughout that period. And I think that the culture that exists across the club, despite the different locations, is very strong. I believe that the sort of if you don't create the culture, it creates itself. And I, I think that what's ha- what what's happening now in our club is that we're we're bringing we're bringing players in. We've got a process that we go through. When a young boy is going to sign for the, say we bring a ten or 11, 12 year old in, Jim Curtin's one of the guys that meets that player and his family. We. We all speak the same language. There's a sort of a coaching vocabulary that permeates through the club. Where we are synonymous for development. Everyone has bought into it. Our club works incredibly hard off the field to generate income, and we are really good at spending it. You know, like we we spend all we spend all the money that the the, the a lot of the money that the club um, income generation we reinvest it back into player development. And myself and Ernst Tanner and Jim Curtin and Tim McDermott, you know, all the, the, the senior guys in senior positions in the club, we, we meet regularly. We're very comfortable with each other. We all speak the same language. And I think that has been part of the success. I mean, you, you, you look at or you read about clubs that are divided or there's factions or there's, there's, there's silos or there's, that we don't have any of that. And, and and now as we integrate into the one building, I just feel that can only go from strength to strength. And as you move forward with this last one for me, I've seen you say and talk about the importance of players preparing properly so that they're ready when they get their call. Can you mm-hmm. talk to our listeners about what that means for you when it comes to the development of the future stars that they would like to see? Yeah, um, I think that I, I'm always saying to the players, a lot of players in my experience, not not necessarily here, are in love with the notion of being a professional. Without, I used to see when, when I was at Rangers, some of the young players would sign their first professional contract and the next day they would be they would be parting their Mercedes beside my, my car, my more modest car. 
and with the, the Prada toilet bag as they walked into the building. And because that's what they see in the TV. So a lot of players are in love with the notion. And then all of a sudden they get the chance and they're not ready for it. So there's a, there's a hell of a lot of preparation that goes on off the field in terms of how you how you live, what you eat, um, how you sleep, how you look after your body. And you can invariably you can tell with the young players that that you can see it in their eyes. The, the most successful ones for me have always been the ones that have had to struggle all the way through to get there. And continually struggle once they do get there. So I remember Brendan made his debut. I think I get I get interviewed about that. And it was he wasn't. I think he wasn't expected to play. Someone was injured. It was against Atlanta. And I was watching the game. And I, I, I'm thinking, how's he going to do here against? It? And then I, I I thought he's ready. Brendan Aronson is ready. He can. I know he's ready. He knows he's ready. And that's what I mean that it's no fluke that those that are given their opportunity are ready to take it. It's because they're prepared and they're prepared and they're prepared for it. What's the main thing that you look for to see if somebody's ready? Is it something in their eyes? Is it something in what they say? I mean, they, they all have physical gifts and some people are born for it and ready for it. And some people, no matter how much talent they have, aren't ready for it. How do you yeah. how do you know? I mean, that's I guess part of your job is how do you know when they're when you, you get to say to to Coach Curtin he's ready? Yeah, I, I would say uh, no crystal ball or magic wand. I, I just think it comes from experience and making mistakes. You know, the, the, there's a few players that are playing in the Scottish national team at the moment that were released from Rangers when I was there, um, and. That I think you need to make a couple of mistakes to, and we were always encouraged to put put your name to a player. You know, if you think if you know the 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 senior managers and coaches in Scotland or at Rangers would come and say, "Who's next? Put your name to a player and and tell me who's go, who's going to be the next uh, uh, top one." So, you I think you just have to back your judgment. We're around them so much. We spend so much time together. We practically live together. You know, you see the players in the morning. You see them in the school. You see them in the afternoon. You live with them in hotels. You see them You, you, you see them in all different walks of life, you know, different aspects of their life, how they handle setback, how they handle injuries, how they handle problems at home with their family. And you know which ones have the resolve to handle it. And I, I think that's... The, the, that's a product of the environment that we're in here. Director of Academy and Professional Development for the Philadelphia Union, Tommy Wilson, thank you so much for the time. We've seen what you've done with what you have in the first 10 years. We can't wait to see where you go next with what's being built here. Uh, best of luck with everything. Thank you. Pleasure. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEG, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. Jeff, you're ready to talk some hockey. We've we've got our man, Sam Carcidi, hockey guru, legendary sports writer, now going to tell about tell us about his next project, too. Sam, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Jason? Jeff, good to be here. 
So glad to have you back. Uh, we'll get to your project shortly. Let's start with the state of the Flyers. I went to a, a game at the end of the season, the Rangers game. Never seen so many blue shirts in a building before. Never seen so many so few fans in a building before. Talk to us about the state of the Flyers with all of the turnover that we're seeing. It seems like a, a time of transition. Yeah, you uh, you did not see uh, the best game of the season. The, the Rangers, of course, took took over the Wells Fargo Center that night. But uh, um, you know, I think the Flyers actually made some decent strides this year. I mean, uh, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. They're far from being a Stanley Cup contender, but uh, you know, a lot of the young kids showed progress, and uh, Owen Tippett was the leader of that group, and I can name five or six other guys that that were 25 or under that had good years. And uh, but you just don't know if they're going to continue on that pace. Uh, another encouraging thing was Travis Konechny looking like a future star. He should have been an all star this year. Uh, but this team, you know, still needs uh, a proven scorer, um, a Johnny Goudreau type, if you will, and uh, still needs uh, a top defenseman. I think you're going to see a lot of moves in the offseason. I think Danny Briere will be very aggressive, much more aggressive than than Chuck Fletcher. Chuck, for whatever reason, sat on his hands and was very passive. And uh, I think Danny knows he needs to change the chemistry, especially on defense. I think this defense has gotten stale. So I think you're going to see a Provrove or a Sanheim uh, trade it. I think they would like to move uh, Ristolainen if they could, but um, who, by the way, played very well the second half of the year. But to me, I think either Sanheim or, or Provorov will get dealt. And if they can find somebody for Tony D'Angelo, he might go too. But you're going to see one or maybe two of those guys dealt in the offseason. They need more firepower up front. And, uh, you know, the fact that Cutter Gauthier uh, has agreed to go back to Boston, to Boston College for a year, that hurts them a little bit. But I think in the long run, it'll help them. But, uh, you know, they're really relying on the fact that they think Cam Atkinson and Joe Couture will both be 100% next year. Uh, that does not make them a Stanley Cup contender. It makes them a, maybe a playoff contender. You know, not a, a great one, but at, at least in the mix. But the good news is that, as I mentioned earlier, that the young kids are developing. And uh, it's a step in the right direction. It, you know, it's not time for a parade, but... But it is a step in the right direction, I think. You know, you mentioned the change in the front office. Obviously, anything, at least the Flyers fans, is better than having Chuck Fletcher come back. So a change is good. The question is that we've been debating, is this change the right change? Is Daniel Breer, who has, for the most part, spent his his post-player career working in a minor league organization, ready for this step? I, th- I think he is. I mean, you never know for sure, Jeff, but uh, um, I will say this. Danny was one of the most intelligent players I've ever dealt with. Uh, when he played, he could analyze a game um, and the key moment in a game seconds after the game was over. And he, he could, you know, tell you who was at a position and who did what. He's a student of the game. Uh, does that translate in the front office? I, I think it will. I think he really... Uh, is a student. He knows other teams. Um, You know, he knows personnel better than Fletcher, I would say. And um, I think he's going to be aggressive. He knows he has to be aggressive. That's what the fans want. And, 
you know, I, I, I think it's, is it rolling the dice to a certain extent? As you said, it's his uh, first full-time job, but you got to get your start somewhere. And, and, uh, um, I'm a big Danny Briere fan. I think he's got a great hockey mind and, uh, you know, is he going to make mistakes? Yes, but I think he'll make shrewd, aggressive mistakes and, and he'll know when to take chances and when not. Fletcher, for whatever reason, did not do that. I mean, um, you know, and the classic example, of course, is Johnny Goudreau last year, where it wasn't a surprise that he became an unrestricted free agent. You knew for years that was going to happen. And yet Fletcher didn't think ahead, didn't clear the space. And Johnny Goudreau, as everybody knows, wanted to play here. When's the last time a, a star player wanted to play in Philadelphia? It's been a long time. So I don't think you'll see those type of mistakes from Danny Briere. And, uh, you know, Chuck Fletcher's been a GM for more than a decade. And and he made mistakes. So, you know, the fact that Briere is in his first year, uh, I don't really hold that against him. I, I think, uh, you know, I, I think he's going to be a good GM and and uh, hopefully the, the fans will give him a chance if, in fact, he is hired. I mean, I'm surprised it's taken this long. I expected him to be named uh, by now. And I wouldn't be surprised if later this week they they name him the full time GM. But the longer it goes, the, the more questions are out there. Do you think that he's got the resources? One, the resources from the from the ownership group to go out and do whatever needs to be done, or do they want him to just draft it and build that way? And second, if they are giving him the resources and, and the go-ahead to do whatever he wants, do they have enough in the cupboard with regard to the players they have now to make trades to get anything substantial back? Yeah, that's that's the big question. Um, you know, they would love to trade Kevin Hayes. Uh, are there going to be takers, or do the Flyers have to eat half his salary uh, for, you know, the remainder of his contract? Um you know, he, you know, that's part of the job of the GM, though, is to make those things happen. And Fletcher did not do that. Uh, but that's a very good point. I mean, you know, is anybody going to want a Kevin Hayes? Uh, but maybe you, you get creative. Maybe you throw in a, a a third or fourth round pick, you know, for somebody to take his contract. Um, you know, you certainly don't do what the Flyers did with Shane Gossespierre. They gave up way too much for them to take his contract, which really wasn't that bad. I mean, um, Hayes' contract is is pretty bad, $7.1 million a year. Uh, Ghost was considerably less than that. So, uh, And then they went out, and uh, Fletcher compounded that by not only getting a player who was just like Ghost in D'Angelo, just a right-handed version, but then you know, giving away a second, third, and fourth-round pick. I mean, it made no sense. And, uh, um, but that'll be the key, you know, uh, you know, it does, he have the players that other teams want and will he be able to, uh, entice other teams to take them if he, if he throws in maybe a prospect or two, uh, and get something in return. Um, but, but we'll see. I, 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 that'll be on Danny Briere and, uh, you know, I have faith in him though. I, I, I think he will get it done. Yeah, it's not second-guessing because people questioned that move at the time, lots of them. Uh, talk to us about the direction of the organization. New governor with Dan Hilferty replacing Dave Scott. Um, do we know anything sort of about him? What do we know about what Comcast or their role will be in terms of supporting the team? Jeff sort of asked about, will they have the resources how involved are they going to be with this new leadership? Yeah, I'm not sure Hilferty is going to be very, uh, you know, he'll have final say, but I think he's going to trust the people below him. And, uh, you know, he 
he was a, a Independence Blue Cross executive. Uh, you know, that's it. That's his background. He has, has a soccer background a little bit, but you know, he's more of a hockey fan than anything else. He he admits that he doesn't know the ins and outs, and he's learning, kind of like Dave Scott. And um, you know, I, I think he'll put good. I think that's why I think it's important that they hire the correct um, hockey operations guy, which they're still searching for. Uh, a Ray Shiro type guy to me would be ideal. And um, that'll be a, a critical hire. Someone that, you know, Danny Brea will report to. And I think that'll be the person that, that keeps things moving. And as far as the resources, I mean, you know, in a cap world, it's everybody's got the same amount of resources. I mean, there's X amount of dollars and, and uh, X amount of dollars to spend. So you have to spend them wisely. You can't make mistakes. And Fletcher, you know, I hate to keep going back to him, uh, but, you know, he made mistakes in uh, what he paid D'Angelo, what he paid Ristolainen, uh, you know, Kevin Hayes' contract. I mean, you can go on and on. And, uh, you know, and his predecessor, uh, Ron Hextel, made some mistakes as well. So, you know, they've been trying to dig out of uh, cap problems now for a long time. And uh, so I, I think Danny will be kind of cautious a little bit. As far as going into the free agent market, uh, he may get a, uh, you know, a mid-sized player this year, a mid-level player. Um, but I think the next year, uh, year two, uh, is when you'll see him may try to make a big splash. You have more contracts off the books and you'll have Cutter Gauthier here. That'll save you some money. He'll be the regular center, uh, probably the number two center two years from now. So that'll save you some money. And, uh, but they have to get some of these guys off the books. There's, there's no question about it because that's, uh, that's weighing them down right now. All right. Well, we've talked flyers. The show goes on, even though the shots of flyers are not in the playoffs. What have you seen so far in the early action of the NHL playoffs? And, and what is your, based on what you're seeing, who would you expect to be in the NHL finals this year? Yeah, I think it's been, uh, it's been great theater so far. Um, uh, and, uh, I'm really, uh, uh, liking what I see, to me, the surprising team right now is Seattle. I really like what I see from Dave Haxtell's team. They play with speed, and, uh, you know, they they uh, a lot of young guys on the team, and and they don't play like uh, Haxtell's Flyers play, that's for sure. And, uh, you know, not that they're going to get to the finals. I don't expect them to. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'd like – I know the Rangers lost last night, but I but I've liked what I've seen from the Rangers. Uh, Boston has been, you know, Boston. Uh, they've had a, a little bit of a hiccup, but um, you know, I, I I wouldn't be surprised if if Boston was upset by the Rangers. Um, they were my dark horse before before this all started. Um, you know, and uh, in the West, I, I I think so many teams could come out. I've always liked Dallas. I think Dallas is a quiet underdog. I think they just play a steady game and uh, Minnesota's tough competition, but um, I'm, I'm, I went with Dallas before the uh, playoffs started to come out of the West. So I'll still go with them. And I think it'll be Dallas and, and uh, uh, either Boston or, or the Rangers. I mean, everybody's picking Boston. So I'd like to go different and uh, I'll roll the dice with the Rangers and I'll go with a, a Rangers Dallas final and may the best team win. But uh uh, but Boston will be tough to beat. There's no question. They, they don't have many weaknesses. But uh, as we've seen, the President's Trophy winner does not come out 
uh, and win the Stanley Cup too often. The odds are not with them. Uh, everybody's shooting for them. So it, it'll be interesting. But I, I think the playoffs have been great. There have been a lot of uh, overtime games, a lot of great competition, some outstanding goalie play. And, uh, you know, Edmonton uh, and L.A. have had a terrific series. I think L.A. has been better than than people thought. And I wouldn't be surprised if that series goes seven. And uh, But it, it's it's been great hockey. It's just a, another level. It's just something. It just aggravates you when you see it because you want to see the Flyers in there and you forget how exciting the playoffs are because uh, every shift is magnified, as you guys know. Every shift is important. And we just haven't had that in three years now. And next year will be going on four years. And uh, I I miss that. I miss that, the, the games and the periods and the shifts when they mean so, so much. And Flyer fans have been cheated out of that for uh, for three years now but uh, it's it's been it's been great hockey though no question about it is your this well at least your prediction based mainly on goalies i mean again you have with the rangers you have shestekin and with with dallas you have odinger and those two goalies have played great most of the season and certainly into the playoffs so far is, is this still a goalie league Oh, I think it is. I think there's no question about it. And, uh, um, yeah, we've seen it over the years with Tampa Bay. And I don't know if you hear the dogs barking in the background. Hopefully you don't. But uh, um, who are they predicting? But, <laughs> <laughs> but there's there's uh, yeah, there's something to that. I mean, there's no question that, uh, you know, going back in the day when the Flyers are winning Stanley Cups, you know, you, you take Bernie Prine out of the equation. I know we're going going back almost 50 years now. I mean, it nothing much has changed there. You know, the, the goalies win championships and, and, you know, Bernie was the Cod Smythe winner in, in both those years. And, and uh, yeah, I, I, I do think the goalies uh, uh, play a big part and uh, um, they will play a big part uh, moving forward. I mean, uh, you know, we saw it with the Islanders last night, you know, they stayed alive because of their goaltender and uh yeah, goalies and defense, and, and and that's one good thing the Flyers have in their favor right now. They have a goalie. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, Carter Hart, some people say, oh, look at his numbers. They're not that great. Well, look at the team in front of them. So I, I really think that uh, the goaltenders uh, will be a uh, a big factor in, in this series, the, the biggest factor. And I think moving forward, the Flyers have that, you know, in the bank, if you will, with, uh, I expect Urson to be the backup next year. And, uh, you know, I think Carter Hart can be a Stanley cup winning goalie down the road. If you get the right pieces in front of him. And right now they just don't have that. That's why that's another reason why I think the defense on the Flyers really has to change. The dynamics just don't work right now. And, and Provorov, uh, again, not to beat a dead horse, but Provorov has not been the guy that they thought he was going to be. Uh, I know somehow he won the Barry Ashby Award as Flyers' best defenseman this year. Um, but uh, it's a low bar. Did not, have a, did not have a great year. I mean, uh, did not really even have a good year. Had an okay year to me. And, uh, you know, you can't have that from your number one defenseman. The goalie is what makes me hope the Flyers aren't as far away as it seems watching those games. And I'm actually encouraged with how Carter Hart has held up through what he's gone through for such a young player to be able to maintain his focus. So I did want to move to your new project, though. So so you were a teenager who put together $40 to go to game six of the 74 Stanley cup finals. Your life has now come full circle. You're partnering with director Jeff Hare, who was a 10 year old flyers fan from Roxborough in 74. 
to collaborate on a 10-part series on the Broad Street Bullies. Tell us about your new project. Yeah, we're we're so excited about it. We, uh, we've been interviewing players from the Broad Street Bully era, not only players, but uh, people connected to the team. Lou Scheinfeld was a vice president back then, and we've interviewed uh, even Gene Hart, the late Gene Hart's wife and, and his daughter, of course, and um, Ed Snyder's family members and uh, just people connected to the team. Uh, Lou Nolan, of course, is the only person that's still around that works for the Flyers that was there when they won their cups in 74, 75. And, and what we're doing, uh, Jason Jeff, is we're putting together uh, at least a 10-part series. We think it'll probably uh, evolve into a 20-part, two-year series uh, on the life and times of the Broad Street Bullies. And we always say it's probably going to be about 30% hockey, and it's going to be more behind the scenes. You're going to learn about Bobby Clark and him all off the ice you're going to learn about ed snyder uh, off the ice and and uh, you're going to we're digging into the personal lives of these people we've talked to a lot of the wives of the players and and uh, you know we're excited we want the average uh, person not not the average hockey fan but the average person to turn on this show and really enjoy it and and to get caught up in the personalities and and what makes them tick and and uh, what they went through and and uh, the groupies that followed them and there was a lot of that going on and and uh, I assume Rexy's bar will Rexy, Rexy's bar will make an appearance in the series Who's that Rexy's bar will make an appearance Rexy's in the series Rexy's bar will in fact we talked to uh, um to Patty who uh, whose dad uh, uh was the owner he has passed away and uh, we talked to Patty who was the general manager there and and uh, probably talked to her for about two hours and, and she told us story after story after story. So we're really digging. We're, we're, we're trying to get the background. We want to get the story uh, as accurate as possible because some of the people uh, unfortunately have passed away that were connected with that team. So, um, so we're, we're gathering all kinds of stories. We must have um, a thousand pages of interviews that we're going through right now. And, uh, you know, our goal is to have it out in the, the fall of uh, 24, 2024, which would be 50 years since they won their cup, their, uh, their first cup. And, uh, you know, we've talked to people about Kate Smith and, and uh, just their daily routines and, and a lot of interesting stuff happened. Um, and that team was so close off the ice and the wives played a big part in it. We're, you know, as I said, we've interviewed several of the wives and the wives kind of held that team together and very interesting. We've learned, learned a lot, a lot of things that have not ever been discussed or written. Um, so it's not a documentary. I want to make clear it's, everybody knows what happened. You know, if you're a flyer fan, you know, what happened in 74 and 75 when they won their two cups and when they beat the Russians in 76, you know, the details we're going behind the scenes and uh, show you the personalities um, behind behind the players and and their families and and as i said what they went through we're going to start in 1967 the struggle to bring the franchise here and it's going to go up all the way through to 1976 um 76 is when they lost to montreal in the stanley cup finals but they were minus rick mcleish minus bernie perron they were both injured three of the four games were one goal games against the mighty Montreal Canadiens. And at the end of that series, they lost in game four at the Spectrum. The fans didn't want to leave. They gave them a standing ovation. They were there for at least a half hour, just standing and cheering. It was like a thank you for the three-year run. And uh, so people say, why are you ending it on a negative note when they lost? But it wasn't 
negative. It was like a salute to the three years. And, uh, and we also wanted to bring it into 76 because of the magnitude of the Russian game. And, uh, you know, the, the NHL despised the Flyers because of their style back then. And uh, yet when they played the Russians, uh, Clarence Campbell went in the locker room before the game and gave them a pep talk and said, be yourself and blah, blah, blah. And the players didn't want to hear it from him because, you know, here's a guy who despised the Flyers. You know, if you see pictures of him handing over the cup with this to them in 74 and five, and he's got a sour look on his face, did not want to hand the cup to them, did not want them as champions representing the league and the league and the old guard was really against the Flyers. It, it's not a stretch to say they were the most hated Stanley Cup champions of all time. The league despised them. Teams around the league despised them. And you know, they use that as fuel. And uh, and we're going to talk about going into enemy rinks and which rinks were the roughest and uh, the New York Ranger fans throwing stuff at their buses uh, every time they were there and challenging them to fights and a lot of stuff like that, behind the scenes stuff that nobody's ever seen. So we're, we're real excited to tell this story and, and uh, to tell it in the players' words and in the wives' words and, and people connected to the team. And uh, as I said, we're, uh, we're hopeful at It'll it'll be out in about a year and a half, and uh, we uh, we've rolled up our sleeves, and we're really excited to do this. It, it's a labor of love for both Jeff and and myself, and and Jeff uh, has worked on a lot of other movies for Lifetime. He's done major motion pictures, but he said he's more excited for this movie than any project he's ever been because he even tells the players, "I've been you know we've been in interviews together," and he says, "I was a ten year old kid, and you made my life when you won the cup." So you know he he's coming from that perspective. And, and as you mentioned, I paid $40 from a scalper and, and bought a ticket uh, to game uh, six of the 74 final, which of course was the clincher, the one nothing win. And it was the best $40 I ever spent. And uh, so we're, we're kind of reliving those days and we're, we're having a lot of fun with it. Well, we can't wait to see it come out. Uh, we hope that in that year and a half, the Flyers are playing better hockey at that point and uh, look forward to having you back as the Flyers start to play better. And as the series comes out, Sam, thanks for always giving us a little bit of time and best of luck with the project thank you guys really appreciate it always fun to get to talk to sam i i hope he's right that the flyers are on the upswing and i can't wait to see what he's he's coming out with jeff that's uh the most hockey talk i think we've had in a year if well, not two it's the flyers own fault <laughs> it lit- we literally bumped the sixers from majority in the middle in their middle of their playoff run so we'll finish with the sixers they get boston now boston goes to six games against atlanta and bead gets yeah, but but do we get him We'll see. I I don't know. It seems like he's going to wear a knee brace if he does mm-hmm. play. We'll know more today or tomorrow. The first game is Monday. You don't have hope whether he's on the court or off. Are you still Mr. Negative? Yeah, I am. Okay. I, I don't. I don't. The Celtics are such a deep team. They they seem to have come together. Uh, yes, they struggled a tiny bit against the Hawks. More than a tiny bit. If Trey Young could hit a shot last night, they'd have lost that game too. Yeah, well, and the, but the Sixers had their struggles with the Hawks in past years in the playoffs too, and, and I don't think that means anything. But, by the way, got, still very glad we didn't play Jimmy Butler in the first round. I told you I did not want Jimmy Butler you know, and Eric Spolstra. Do you, do you think and if the Sixers keep not winning a championship, that will stick in, in Sixers fans' craws for as long as you can remember? Because I can't tell you how many text messages I have gotten that just keep saying, 
if we had Jimmy Butler, we would have won a championship. So yeah, Twitter lit up with that. And mm-hmm. and even afterwards, they ask him, like, what does it mean to, to hear the MVP, MVP chance? And he's like, well, with all due respect, I think it's Joel who's the MVP. You can tell that they really like each other, and it would have been mm-hmm. something special. And that's not the direction that this team went at the time, which kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah, and, and can you even remember what they got for Jimmy Butler? Uh, no. Richardson? Okay. Right? Yeah. When Richardson was one of them, right? Yeah. Why do you ask uh, me this were... when we're uh, like not prepped for Oh, because I figured those are the kind of things that stick in your craw, that, that stick in your head for years usually. Usually. It's those things that usually you will just never live down. So I'm I'm kind of glad that you were able to push that out. Yeah, it hurts. I'm I'm still on some of the other failures that have happened. I, the game. Okay, the, so, we'll get ready for another one. <laughs> <laughs> about thirty seconds. I sec- hope I'm wrong. About, I really do. Hope I really I'm wrong. hope you're wrong too. I, this but, it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday for the series. So that's games. Yeah, how important is it that the Sixers get a win in Boston? Yeah, I, I wonder if because, Embiid plays in Game One or if he's back for Game Two. I'm just not sure what they do with that. If he can play in game two, then he should be ready for game one. Any final thoughts, Jeff? That was it. Leave it on a high note. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.